remind a couple of you who uh, were here last time, I'll remind you uh, uh, of the importance of chapter uh, 2, verse 12 and 13. Um, my own conviction is that this verse, uh, actually two verses, this passage, uh, verse 12 and verse 13 of Philippians 2, is probably in a very succinct manner, is probably one of the most important verses in the Bible on what sanctification is. And again, without we spent a lot of time on this last week, without going through all this again, remember uh, that the doctrine or the idea of teaching of sanctification is the process by which God makes us holy. We are holy according to our <clears throat> being justified by faith. Justified means to be declared holy. That is our position in Christ. We are holy. Sanctification is the practical outworking of that on a day-to-day basis. It is the process by which God practically brings us into conformity with his values, his morals, and his standards. We call that sanctification. The command in verse 12 is we are to work out our sanctification. Work out your, he uses the word soterion, salvation, but that can be used in one of three ways in the New Testament. And clearly, Clearly, the reference here is sanctification. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell us to work out our justification. That, that's contrary to everything else in the scriptures. But anyway, I think that's clear. But what is important about this passage is the connection between 12 and 13, because there is a causal connector there. Why are we committed to working out our sanctification? Because God is at work. And if you notice very carefully, there are two ways in which God is at work in our lives, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Some of you might have a little bit of a different translation of to do, to obey, or, or other ways it's often translated. But the point is God is at work both in the area of our will as in the area of our obedience. And as we talked about last week, I think to me personally, my walk with God over the many, many years that I've walked with the Lord since 1972, this area has been one of the most important. To uh, ask the Lord, to pray to the Lord, to uh, plead with the Lord, to change my will about something. Because uh, the area of the will is the area of our intentionality. It's, it's, it's what is in our mind, it's what's in our attitude, it's what's in our motivation. All of those things that we talked a little bit about last week. So to me, this is this is just an amazing statement. It's an amazing command that God, through the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is saying, here now is your task. You know, the assumption is, and clearly that's true in book Philippians, the assumption is these are people who are believers. These are people who have made that decision of faith. Now, you get busy. Work out your sanctification because God's at work. At the practical level of the process of living for the rest of our lives, before the Lord comes back to us and we die and go to be with Him, this is our task. But another way of saying that is the pursuit of holiness in our lives is not a passive pursuit. It's not a passive one. It's an activist pursuit. We are to be busy. We are to be active. We are to be alert or to be aware of what, um, of what is going on in our lives. And this process does not end until the day we, we got tired of the Lord would come back for us. 
So that's kind of a review. We spent almost the entire hour last week on this. So a couple of you weren't here. I want to make sure you are in sync with this because the next section builds on this. So, okay. Any questions? Well, you talk about uh, uh, the work for sanctification being an active thing, and I liken it to the price of freedom control of vigilance. I think we think of vigilance as being only, well, okay, we're going to be watchful. But is there not an active component of that? What if we see something wrong that we need to take action on? Action is part of it, so I look at eternal vigilance as an active role. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this has so many tentacles to it and so many dimensions to it, but I, I, I would agree with that. Now, I think that would... Um, what does that then mean, eternal vigilance? You see something wrong, what does that mean exactly as we work some of that out in our own lives and so on? But I, uh, so that obviously I think something needs to be discussed, but I would, I would agree with that. I think the, uh, and you, I pray this a lot, and, and many of you have been in class for a while, I've heard you pray this. Part of it is, too, it's representing the Lord well in all that we do. It's that we're very conscious uh, and, and aware that we do not only reflect what the Lord stands for, but we reflect his values, his morals, and his ethical standards. And um, as this is hardly original thought with me, but sometimes the only gospel people will see is us. So, I mean, you know, until they sit down and read the word, they, what they're seeing is us. We, we represent that gospel. So I think that's a part of it, too. And like I said, I think there are many tentacles to this and many layers to this. But it's important for what we're doing in Philippians is to see that what Paul is saying to them is you are to be active. You are to, you are to be pursuing this holiness uh, uh, with vigilance, with ro- a robust passion. It is not a passive. It is not a passive thing. And after all, for goodness sake, if you study the New Testament, and so many, I'm, I'm thinking of the Epistle of James, half, uh, every other verse, so it would be half of the verses in the book of James is a command. So if it's a command, that's obedience, which is an active response to truth. So again, I mean, if commands of Scripture mean anything, it means it's calling on us to be active, to be obedient, to be, to, to be in a, with robust passion pursuing uh, this, this life of, of, of walking with the Lord. Uh, right. Jesus uh, wanted the, the disciples to fulfill the Great Commission. And so he says, go ye unto the world, and he defines the different three areas and so forth, symbolizing where you're at and then throughout the world. We can have the presence of, of uh, salvation within us, right? And, and if we're just like uh, deaf, dumb, and mute, no one else is going to see that or necessarily hear it. Um, so not only are, are we in the present state of, of, of being saved, but when, when we do and talk and do things, Others can see that and perhaps be drawn to that, and then we are engaged in the Great Commission. I mean, is that kind of like the benefit not only to us, but his purpose that we became his children? I mean, 
Is that kind of what we're saying here? It's not. Well, that, that, yeah, that is a part of what, what I think Paul is saying here. But it's 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 much more than that. Yeah. But that is very much a part of it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, obedience again. Obedience is responding to the commands that are in Scripture, right? I mean, that's what obedience yeah, yeah. is. Yeah. Uh, the, the the command of the Great Commission is make disciples. As you go, baptize and teach, make disciples. That's the command. And all of us, to one degree or another, can be involved in the fulfillment of that. The command is make disciples. The assumption is you're going to go, and as you go, you're going to teach, and you're going to baptize people, which is the, the mark of a disciple uh, making a commitment publicly to Christ. So as you do that, you're in the process of making disciples. Someone that teaches, someone that uh, participates in officiating communion, someone that... that helps usher. I mean, all of those things can be a part of making disciples for the Lord. Service would be another one. Serving, Sorry? Serving would Serving be another one. Yeah. I mean, all the different ways, but it's all a part of making disciples. Because the Lord... Making disciples is not only... <clears throat> I'm going to put it the way evangelicals put it. It's not only getting people saved... You know what I mean? It's not only getting people to make their faith commitment to Christ. That is absolutely the most important thing. But it's also then what's following. What follows that? And uh, there are many, 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 many people in the local church that are involved in what follows that. From caring for children in the nursery to involved in Sunday school classes with young children to involved in youth ministry to involved in being an usher to be involved in in helping to get people parked. I mean, all of those things are a part of the local church. Coming together for worship, for teaching, for fellowship, which is a part of making disciples. Uh, so, that's all I have is to that say just, about that. Is that limited just to evangelical? Sorry? Is that limited to the evangelical church? Don't the other, don't all churches? Well, no, but you, the, what, the reason I said that is not every branch of Christianity says we need to get them saved and they oh, talk yeah. about it another okay. way. I shouldn't have said it. Uh, no, it's because everybody right. knows what I mean in this group. Yeah. But, um, so I hope you understand. That's what Paul is not, what he's talking about here is not justification. He's not talking about people getting to, to respond to faith to the message of Christ. He's talking about, okay, what's next? You put your faith in Christ. Now what's next? And um, that's, to me, you know, one of the reasons I do Bible studies like this is I'm interested in the what's next. I'm really interested in that. Because uh, so often, um, whether it's even a conscious, willful thing, but so often we don't think very much about what the next is. And people just kind of wallow and st- stammer and stagger around. No, it's very clear what the next is. So let's get busy with the what's next. All right, now, uh, you know, I, I was hoping to do this in three minutes, but it's now 13 minutes. That's okay. Is that just a summary of what we did last week? Is anybody not with me? This is just a really, really important part of what's in Philippians. Because the rest of the book kind of really goes from this very significant section. So now he illustrates some things. Look at what he says in verse, 13, excuse me, in verse 14. Now, why he chooses to do it this way, and why he chooses to put this particular emphasis, we're not sure. Maybe something that was a part of the Philippian church, 
Or it may be that he just knew what Christians were like. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. What's the operative phrase there? All things. The do is durative, it's continuous. That is an ongoing, continuous, it knows no limit kind of command. The command is do. Do what? All things. What all things? What he had just been talking about. So your pursuit of holiness, your pursuit of sanctification is to be done without grumbling or disputing. Now, grumbling is you're kind of turning, I don't know if this metaphor will work, you're turning the mirror towards yourself. <laughs> so whatever you do, you don't do it with grumbling. And then you turn the mirror around and turn to others, and what you do in the body with other Christians is there's no disputing. Now, I don't know about you, but both of those words are really convicting to me. <laughs> grumbling and disputing. I don't think any of you has a struggle with us, so you'll hypothetically have to imagine that. But grumbling, murmuring, complaining, griping. Are you starting to get the picture of what that word means? Why? Why no grumbling? Let's get theological. Why no grumbling? Do you remember some people in the Old Testament who grumbled a lot? Mm. You certainly yes. do. The children of Israel. One of the classic, the classic illustrations of that is God remarkably, incredibly, and, and powerfully liberated from Egypt and says, I'm not going to fulfill my promise to give you the land I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they're in, they're, you know, they're outside of Egypt several days, and they are saying, "Oh, thank you, Lord. The blessings of your grace are fantastic." No, they're grumbling and saying, "We want to go back to Egypt, yeah. Moses. Yeah. We like the pizza there. We like the Reese's peanut butter cups that Fred just gave you there. We, I mean, all of those things." No, God says, "Moses," and this goes on for a while. And, and I don't remember this is after a pretty significant catastrophe. But God says, Moses, step aside. I'm going to wipe these people out. And Moses said, no, you've got time out. You can't do that. Your name's at stake here. And that, that is an interesting story in and of itself. But grumbling. So here's the theological question. Why no grumbling? Sorry. Because in verse 5, we're called to have the mind of Christ. And then in verse 8, Christ went... Uh, to the cross without grumbling and complaining. So our sanctification is supposed to emulate his action. Who's our model in sanctification? It is Jesus. Galatians 4.19, Romans 8.29, 2 Corinthians 3.16 all tell us that the goal of sanctification, the goal of what God is doing is to transform us into the image of his son. That's the goal. Now, here, this is the next question. So, if, if what Ty said is correct, and he is correct, then God is at work transforming us into his son, then what's the methodology God uses to do that transformation? <clears throat> yeah. 
near. Yeah, I mean, it's, remember James 1, 2, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Who, who looks at that and says, Amen? Well, you do, because that's how God does it. God's methodology does not involve coincidence or random. That, you have to think about that for a minute. Maybe you already thought through all that. But if what we believe about God, that he's sovereign, that he's providential, that he is in control of all things, that he's working his plan, therefore, if those things are true, they're, for you and me, our perspective and our life, there really is no such thing as a coincidence. No such thing as what? A coincidence. Or random. God's methodology does not involve what? Say that again, Jim. I don't know how I say it. It doesn't involve coincidence? <laughs> yeah. Or randomness. I think that's how I say it. Randomness? Okay. Fred, what I say is not, not that profound that you have to get every word. <laughs> oh, sometimes, but sometimes it, I mean, it's it is. Just, I think if, that, if we believe that, and I, I hope you believe that, then, I mean, it's very easy to say this in a comfortable room and all of that on a, on a, it's a gorgeous winter day we're having, but it's, it's very hard to live that. But if that's true, we shouldn't grumble. Yeah. Uh, well, I just had a question regarding that. You see all the... I mean, it's not godly, but some godly people in the Bible who are casting lots or essentially flipping a coin or rolling the dice in order to maybe in some cases seek God's will. Where does that fall into the whole? Uh, you're, I think you're thinking there of um, like the Urim and Tumim and trying to figure out, you know. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, let me answer it in this one. The book of Proverbs says that even God controls the casting of a lot. So if you're going to use something like that to discern and figure out what God wants you to do, he's in control of that too. I don't mean you're throwing dice and you pray for a seven every throw. That, you know, I don't think Amen. God necessarily is going to do that. But in the ancient world, I mean, you're correct, and even as a part of uh, how they tried to discern God's will sometimes, uh, the, um, the, the casting of the lots uh, are even under God's control, Solomon says in the book of Proverbs. So even if you look at it, there's no such thing as coincidence. This actually yeah. is a topic that I struggle with a lot. When I think of it, I think of the struggle of good versus evil in the world. And I, I quote, I quote the movie Oh God in our Bible studies. Because of the problem, I'm not, you know, I'm a new, new kid on the block here, so I'm not as far into it as you guys are. Problem, he gave us free will. How can he respect his decision to give us free will, his own decision, still be in control of everything? Yeah, because he's God. Certainly he's God. But will he 
violate his own integrity? No. Now, uh, some of you see me do this, but I'm going to do it again. Um, in case you don't recognize that that's a railroad track. Okay? I want you to think about life, your life, my life, all. Uh, we're speaking of believers. I'm not speaking about the person who's uh, not embraced the grace of God in Christ. And so I'm talking here only about believers. Uh, this is also true for the unbeliever, but for, for the believer. We are walking, we are walking the path of life. Let's just, let's just pretend that it's like walking on railroad tracks, okay? Now, for a railroad track to run, there have to be two tracks, right? I mean, a train does not want to run on one track. The one part of the railroad track is divine sovereignty. The other part of the railroad track, I actually don't like the phrase free will because it's not in the Bible. So I'm going to put it this way, if you don't mind, human responsibility or, if you will, responsible freedom. <clears throat> I believe, uh, and that I've written an article on this, but I believe very strongly that both of these are taught in Scripture. They both are true. Now that's hard for you and me in our finite to say, well, how can God's sovereignty and responsible freedom be both true? Because that's how the scriptures present. Let me give you an example, um, uh, which I think really highlights it. And it isn't necessarily about salvation; it's, it's about an act. The Lord is Lord Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. They're eating the Passover meal, and Jesus is taking the bread, dipping it into the the herbal uh, mix, and so on that they would eat. He said, "Tonight, as he's dipping it, tonight one of you is going to betray me, according to the scriptures." Which side of the railroad track is that? Divine sovereign. Semicolon. But woe to that man. It would be better if he were never born. Which side of the railroad track is that? When Judas betrayed Jesus, it was a part of the plan. But Judas responsibly, freely chose to betray his Lord. And he's accountable for that. Can you put those two together? That's hard, because both are being stated in that single verse. Judas' betrayal of Jesus was according to, the, according to the plan. But it was a responsible free act on his part for which he has come. That's the railroad. So having responsibility does not guarantee the right decision. Does not guarantee the right to? The right decision. That correct decision. Or the wise decision, yes, yeah. yeah. That's a very broad statement you made, but I would, I would agree with that conceptually, yes. And, and again, this is theological, and I don't know how far you want to go with this, but it, you're, the question you're raising is a very valid question. It's a very good question. So when the Lord says to us, uh, I am going to transform my task, my ghost, the Lord speaking, my task is to transform you into the image of my son. That's the goal. That's what I'm doing. You made your faith decision in Christ. 
You're righteous in my eyes. Now, here's what we're going to be doing the rest of my life. Your life. I want you to put your hand tightly in mine because we're going to do this. And I'm asking you to be an activist in the pursuit of this because I am very active in your life. I know exactly what I'm doing. And I know exactly what it's going to take for you to get from this point to this point. Will you trust me with that? Amen. And that's a big thing for him to say to us. Will you trust him with us? I said, no, Lord, listen, I have a different plan. You don't have the same goal, but I have a different way of getting it. Is that okay with you? What's the Lord's response going to be? No, no, that's not the way we're going to do it, because I know you better than you know yourself. So I want you to trust me with this. And so for the unbeliever as well as for the person in Christ, God is at work. And I believe this very strongly. For the believer, nothing happens to us that is not, this is hard truth, but nothing happens, this is the believer, nothing happens to us that is not filtered first through the gracious, loving hand of God. You have to think about that. Because when everything is going fairly well in your life, you say, Amen. But when you go to the doctors five years from now and the diagnosis is cancer, can you still say on that? Amen. When you're in a serious automobile accident, or I mean just the many, 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 many things that can happen to us, can you still say amen? So it's, it's hard. It's extremely hard for us, practically speaking, in the day-to-day living, to accept us. I mean, we... You know, so far, it's 20 after, and we have only covered a part of one verse, and that's okay. But it is focusing on this, do all things without grumbling. That, you know, I mean, you start thinking and meditating on that. That is a huge command for us. Because I have a tendency to grumble, murmur. Because I'm pretty sure I know how to do things better than God. Yeah. And he, has gen- he gently reminds me of <coughs> you. want to say anything more about this? Or you would... Isn't there a verse that, uh, that speaks to that as far as nothing happens to us um, that isn't first sifted through the hands of God? No, that's not a quote necessarily. Yeah. There, there are some verses that are. The, the passage that comes to my mind, Daryl, is the end of it's Romans 8 28 through the end of that chapter, about 39. There's just a whole bunch of stuff there. And, you know, he, he says to us there through Paul that, you know, all that happens to you, I, this is God paraphrasing it, making God the, the speaker. All that happens to you, I'm going to make it turn out for good. It may have an evil intent to it. Satan may have a very evil, deceptive, deceitful uh, uh, goal in this attack, but I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to make it, I'll make good out of it. And I want you to trust me with that. And then that great chain of of blessings that follows, and then you get to the end of the chapter where he says, you know, I'm telling you right now, nothing 
nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Amen. Because you suffer doesn't mean God doesn't love you. When bad things, seemingly bad things happen to you, that doesn't mean God doesn't love you. And if you take that and combine it with James 1, 2 and just multiple other passages, God is at work and God will accomplish even through suffering and extremely difficult times the good he has for you. Because he's filtering, filtering the things to accomplish his purpose. The cl- a classic example of this is Genesis 50 where uh, Joseph now, to his brothers, they're clear who he is. Uh, Jacob has died. The brothers are afraid. Now, okay, now that dad's dead, he's going to take his revenge. Remember what Joseph says. When you guys threw me into that pit, threw me and sold me into slavery, you meant that for evil. And how does he say it? God meant it for good. God took a dastardly evil act and turned it into something good. And then finally, the best example of that that you can possibly think from, uh, through from Scripture is Jesus on the cross. Yes. That's the most dastardly evil thing that's ever happened in the human race. Here's a perfectly innocent, perfectly, perfectly righteous person crucified on a cross, the most horrific death you can imagine. God brought eternal good out of that. The salvation of you and me. Everyone else that put their faith. Amen. God takes something evil and makes it good. Oh, yeah, we. Uh, I, I just wanted to thank you for last week. You made reference to Matthew 5 and the Beatitudes. And uh, I went into there this morning. Good. And uh, kind of like he was telling us that uh, we don't have to worry about nothing. He's going to take care of it. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. like, uh, he makes reference to we don't have to worry about planting yeah. and uh, and how he feeds the birds yeah. and things like that. Yeah. Don't you wish we could live like that every single day? We didn't. Oh, don't yeah. worry. My wife's favorite verse is Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Let me just go back. Yeah, you know, a lot of you know that I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and that, you know, we talked about turning our life and our will over to God and and the insanity that we that we experience we keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result and uh, it all tie they, they kind of mesh you know the AA teaching and the in the in the Bible and uh, we say the same thing it's like you might be the only big book somebody ever sees you know yeah. Or you, and you're, and you're, you're saying that we might be the only gospel that somebody sees. I think the, the, the value of taking some of the constructive teachings of AA is you add to that the very personal nature of Jesus Christ. Right. And all that he has personally accomplished in that personal relationship that you can have with him, which is, I think, uh, one of the keys to the next step in renewal in that person's life. And I see that, Woody, in you. I really do. I see that in you. And you know, the, as we've talked many times in the class, the beauty of all of this, that what God is doing, even this, what we study here and look into, is just to be, let's be patient with one another. 
As God is patient, let's be patient with him because God is not yet finished. He hasn't finished his goal. My wife's favorite, she has a very dear friend who is, because you know my wife has a, a number of physical things she struggles with, but she's a very, very dear friend. And on May, they, they talk on the phone, email, and the phrase they constantly use with one another is, we're patient for the process. <laughs> Isn't that great? We're patient for the process. The process, and you know what they mean by that, is the process of God making us holy, taking us through all the things step by step. We're patient with Him. Amen. Because God's at work. God's at work. So that's uh, right. Uh, one of the things that comes to my mind is that when we encounter difficulty and we don't understand it, Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane which you probably toured at recently. We did. You? We were standing right there. Yep. That uh, he said, nevertheless, and I, he was contending with God, not my will, but thy will be done. And if Christ can go to God and, and have that kind of prayer, we too, when we don't understand it, should feel free to go to God and pour out our hearts I mean, don't, don't you think that's part of working, working out our, our salvation is understanding His will and He is sufficient for us during those difficult times when we don't get it and there's no way we can get it? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, a classic example of that is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, but also think of 